Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today we welcome back Dr. Dan Lyons. I asked Dr. Lyons to join us to talk about heart rate variability. If you don't know what that is, then you're definitely going to want to stay tuned to find out. Dr. Lyons has been using HRV in his office to gain insight into the function of his patient's autonomic nervous system, and this is something that everyone can do. So without any further ado, Dr. Dan Lyons. Hello, Dr. Lyons. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dr. Fowler. Um, let's start off by talking a little bit about heart rate variability. Um, okay. A lot of people may not be very familiar with that, but can you kind of talk about how, you, how it came to be on your radar, how you first learned about it and realized it could be a productive tool for the office, and um, what made you decide to start doing it in your office? Um, it was really uh, uh, Rob Sennett called me up one day, and he had stumbled onto it and said, you know, this would be a, a, a great thing as he was starting to put together the idea for the adaptability symposium. And he had found the, the, the unit that I have. So I've had it for eight, eight, nine years now. And that was the, the, the best unit that we could find that was approved for use in a clinical setting and it uh and it, it did what we needed to do there's a lot of hrv stuff out there and uh, some of it is usable uh, legally some of it uh is is use it gives you usable metrics and some of it's just it's hrv for the sake of hrv <clears throat> and so he says you know this would be really cool so i called up the guy and and, and bought one and started doing it and that was it and hmm. then uh Ra was uh i said okay so I got this thing, you know, shoot me some studies. It's like, what? I said, well, I went and bought the, the HRV unit. He's like, wow, I didn't think you'd, you know, I didn't mean for you to go and get one. I'm like, ah, if it's going to work for the profession, we got to, we got to try it out and see. And so that's how I got started. It was just really that simple. Rob had a passing thought that was a great idea. And so we jumped on it and, and it's been a boom. You know, the hard part with HRV is that, like I, I said earlier, the tools that are approved for use in the clinic, in, in any clinic with patients, are typically not the best tools to, they don't show you what you really want in a, in a format you really want that makes it good to pull the data apart and see are you actually, uh, are you actually making the changes you want and produce good research. Um, and that mainly because you want to be able to actually look at the data points and cut out sections that have bad data because of uh, errors in, in picking up the heartbeat. You know, the patients are, my patients, they start out lying down, then they stand up, then they sit down, then they do Valsalva for I don't know, 20, 20 heartbeats ish, 20, 30 heartbeats ish. And then they do normal breathing and then they do deep breathing. And so they have these different challenges. And sometimes as they move, the leads change a little bit, especially on, on heavier people, you, you might have some signal acquisition errors. And if you can't cut that data out, little changes can make a huge difference in the actual readings. So if you can't see that data and you're relying on the computer to say, oh yeah, this is good data. Uh, I've, they all make mistakes. So you have to be able to look at that. And that's the, that's the hard part of finding those things. The, the best software and the best tools out there are not approved for use in a clinical setting. They're all used just for uh, basically marketing research and, and psychology studies. So oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's unfortunate uh, too. Yeah. Um, when you get the results off of it, what kind of things does it tell you? Because I've heard that it's, it can be used to measure autonomic function. So since we're ones that are preoccupied often with not mixing systems, staying in a certain system, and so we want to know that, okay, I'm trying to stick to the parasympathetics. And typically speaking, we have no way of measuring that. So we just assume, based on changes in symptoms, that maybe I was successful at what I attempted to do. Um, yeah. 
how does HRV help you to have a better understanding of whether or not you actually accomplished the mission? Well, so HRV, heart rate variability, uh, is we're looking at the changes in the time between the beats. So everything that we see in HRV is is telling us something about the, the autonomics. And most people think their heart should beat like a metronome, you know, sits on a piano and keeps perfect time. And that is absolutely not the case. If your heart beats like a metronome, that's a big problem. Uh, all things being equal, there should be a, a fairly, you know, wide uh, variation in time between the beats on a beat by beat moment. And then it should cycle with your breathing and it should cycle throughout the day. Um, and the longer you look at it, you know, if you could constantly look at it, I would imagine that the seasons there'd almost be a seasonal thing as the, especially like someplace here in Wisconsin, where, you know, it goes from 20 below to it's going to be 40 in a couple of days. So you're going to have some, as the weather changes, you should have some variation. And the way I explain it to patients, you know, you've got the sympathetic, which is like the, the gas in the car and a parasympathetic that are like the brakes. And the sympathetics makes you strong and fast, get you ready to run and fight. Parasympathetics slow you down, get you ready to heal, learn, digest, grow, fall in love, fall asleep, all the better things in life. And in, in the office, you know, since there is no, it shouldn't be an overly stressful uh, surrounding environment, that they should be fairly balanced or you should have a little bit more parasympathetic activity than sympathetic activity, and which is almost never the case. And so there are ways to filter out the sympathetics. The hard part is that you're getting both all the time. And so there's a lot of different metrics that you can measure it with. Like IBI is a very common one, interbeat interval, which is uh, poor for what we do. Uh, SDNN is a little bit better, but it's still not uh, good. Uh, RMSSD is, is probably clinically the best metric, but it's very difficult to find, if not impossible, I've yet to find a machine that will, is FDA approved that will let you measure that. So then you gotta, you have to find something that records it in a format. You can take it and then buy another $10,000 software program to disassemble it and, and, and look at it. And so it is, it's a nightmare is what it is. Yeah. So, but in the, pretty much everybody in the, in the clinic comes in and they have less parasympathetic activity than they should. And the, the unit I have, I can see, uh, it gives me a little blue uh, wave graph that shows the changes in their heartbeat. And so the simplest way is to just see, you know, post adjustment, is there an improvement? Uh, is there a change from progress exam to progress exam? I don't always do a uh, pre and I actually most of the time I don't do a pre and post adjustment HRV because it takes too long. Um, mm -hmm. They're uh, the and the best way to do something like that would be to hook them up and just let them sit there in the chair, you know, while you're scoping or palpating and just let it r run for five minutes, 10 minutes, and then adjust them and see what changes. And uh, I might have been, I, I, I don't know if it was the last adaptability symposium or the one before that, where we had a, a professor from a college in Florida, and he talked about doing case studies. And if case studies were done properly, they would carry far more weight than any randomized clinical trial. But it would be, you're going to run the tape for, for 10, 15 minutes before intervene and then see the change. But the Goldilocks zone is a, is a big thing with this. You can have too much variability and it's, it's at the right time. If you, if a bear walks into the room and uh, you have a lot of heart rate variability, you're in big trouble because you're not making it out of that room. You know, a bear is going to get you. You have no chance. Um, but if, you know, it's a peaceful day at the beach and you have no variability, that's also a big problem. So like Goldilocks, you know, this one's too hot, too cold, just right. That's the same thing. So you can have too much variability as well. And uh, that's where the idea of coherence comes in, in that it has to be the right amount of variability. So, you know, a, a lot of people like to think that the adjustment can never do uh, any harm. 
And philosophically, that is true because the adjustment is done by innate intelligence. It's not the thrust that we put on there. And if there is no subluxation there, then you can't adjust. But in a clinical setting, there's people that adjust things that shouldn't be adjusted all the time. And that force going into that body is going to have an effect. If innate can't use it, then it's a manipulation and you have, uh, you've created a problem there that the nervous system has to deal with. And so when you do that, you know, you can change the HRV, but did you improve the HRV? It's not changing it. It's, mm -hmm. it's improving it that you really want to see. And that's a, you know, a five month course, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how to look at those things. Uh, as far as I, I know you wanted to know, is there a way to look at the HRV and say, you know, should I just be in the, in the parasympathetics or can I go into both? Uh, possibly I, there are, I haven't seen it tell me that anything in a manner, any more convincing than what I can already figure out with talking with the patient, looking at the x-ray and using my scope. So it, it, it will confirm at times, but that's something that I would have already known. Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I look at use it in the office, the biggest thing I tell me is, so if someone's got a very, very low HRV, I know that they are going to respond slower than, than someone with a higher HRV. If someone comes in, you know, probably once a month, I'll have a new patient come in and their, their HRV is pretty close to the normal uh, a normal level of sympathetic and parasympathetic activity. And those people, you adjust them two, three times, and all of a sudden their expression, so going back to the safety pin cycle, the, the very bottom of the safety pin cycle, the coordination and the expression, that, that ha occurs very well. Having said that, they might still have a bunch of stuff on the x-ray that structurally needs a bunch of work. And, and so when I go through the report of findings, I'll say, so when I look at, when I'm looking at your HRV, it tells me that you're going to respond really quickly. So you're going to feel better. You're going to see changes in your physiology very fast, but you still got these crappy, these three crappy spots on your x-ray that need a bunch of work. And so once you are neurologically doing better from, we'll check the HRV and, and doing that, then we will we can see a little bit less frequently, but you still have to get that fixed or it's going to come back and bite you. So yeah, that's still hugely valuable though. Cause a lot of times that's when you have a patient, they don't respond as quick as you might've hoped that they would. I think hope is probably the best word for that. And you wonder, well, why didn't they respond as well as I hoped they would. And if you have that, you don't set your expectations or theirs too high because you already know, let's look at the long haul here. And that's probably quite beneficial. At a hundred percent, you know, the HRV and the amount of degeneration you see on the x-ray are the two things that really say, okay, this is going to be a long haul or this is going to be, you're going to see results really fast. And there's yeah. a few people that surprise you, but uh, you know, it's very interesting. So I've had, you know, a, a handful of NFL players in the office and a few other like world cap class athletes. And when you see the HRV, you can tell those people right away. I had one gal that she was a world-class softball player. I didn't know this. I mean, she was, she didn't look that when she came in the office and I did the HRV and I'm like, and I said, are you some like wickedly, insanely amazing athlete at, at, at one point? Mm -hmm. And she's like, uh, yeah, world-class, you know, softball should have been this, but then I, I hurt my knee and then I'm like, oh, she goes, how'd you know? I'm like, cause the, your HRV says that you are quite the, uh, physiologically talented individual. She's like, wow. <laughs> and she, she's like all happy that, and I'm like, all right, you can get it back. We'll get it. this, let's get this back and this knee fixed up and then you'll be back out there. And so, yeah. <laughs> And then, but on the other side, you see people that are really, really not doing well. And, you know, there's times I'm like, all right, we got to get you, you need to go see your cardiologist and your neurologist. You got some serious stuff going on there. And even in the, the manual, I thought I had it here. 
they say that, you know, spinal degeneration will affect HRV. And so, mm. uh, you know, they're, they're well aware of that. That's interesting. Yeah. Have you ever, um, have you ever had the HRV make you, make you decide that you need to do something different or has it ever changed your, your course of, of treatment? Um, or, yeah, there, you know, if there, there's times when I will not see a big change on the HRV and someone comes in and they have low parasympathetic, so I know it's going to be slow and they got a, you know, a spine that's not, not, uh, it's not healthy. There's a lot of degeneration in there, no curves. And if I, you know, so I'll see them for, I typically do a progress exam somewhere between 15 or 20 visits, or if they have a big change, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, I had a guy come in, could barely walk. Uh, and he was very antalgic forward and, and to the right. And he came back for his second visit and he was standing upright and smiling. And we just went right back and started over again. Okay. Something different. And I mean, he had a huge change in his, his lumbar curve. He had no curve in his lumbar spine and now he had almost normal curve in there. So you got to take those x-rays. Uh, his HRV was much better and pain will also, you know, I ask people that, if they have a real bad HRV score, you know, did it hurt? How much pain were you in when you were going through the test? And if like some people, especially if they have a real bad kyphosis, they have to lay down on their back. And if that is painful, then that's going to reduce that score. So there's, you have to understand just like, uh, you know, with all of our tools, you have to understand what you're doing and how, how the tools work in order to, to really get any useful knowledge out, out of them. But let's yeah. say, so I come up with the game plan and everything seems to play out the way I want, but I don't see a change in the HRV then and, and, the, and the, the x-rays, then I know I've got to go to plan B. And so then I might move a couple segments. I might just go to one system if I'm not uh, in, in one already. So I might switch from sympathetic to parasympathetic or vice versa, but it's usually not on the first visit looking at them. You just have one, one data point. That's really probably about five, seven minutes long and through those challenges, but what it, the way I do it. So I, like uh, most people that are listening to this probably have uh, CLAs, pulse wave profiler where the patient sits there with their hand in there for a while, um, which is okay. You know, I can kind of, if I look at one of those, I had figured it out one time, I, I have to turn the graph, but I can get a, some of the information I get from mine. Mine will give me like 20 pages worth of stuff, uh, way too much data to use <laughs> on a clinical basis. But if, if someone is laying down and they have a pretty normal HRV, then they stand up and so now they're loading their spine against gravity and we see a big drop. There should be a little drop. We see a big drop, you know, now that's showing us that's confirmation that, okay, they, as soon as they have to actually load their spine, then they have a problem. And so that helps us if they are better standing than when they're lying down, then, then that is usually more of an upper cervical issue. I found mm. the other thing that, uh, I can do with mine so I can hook it up a real time and, and just let it run and do things. So I can, I can hook it up to you and let it sit there. The downside to doing that is it doesn't give you the same, you don't get the same graphs. So there's a little less usable data on my end for that. So, and trying to get them to change their format so they can export to a better software is no one wants to do that because everybody's, you know, their business for themselves. And, you know, everybody's got their proprietary software. That's amazing. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's funny that you say that about the, uh, the standing thing. Cause that happened to me. Um, when we did the meet of the minds in Atlanta, uh, Chris Meyer did my test mm -hmm. and found that my, that I was better when I stood up yeah. that my, more parasympathetic. And what was funny is he didn't know this, but I, I had a, about a week or so prior to that, I was walking through the parking lot in the dark and I ran into a pole, my head was down and I'd screwed up my Atlas 
Um, and I got it and I was having all kinds of weird symptoms, dizziness and other things. I got it adjusted and it all went away. And yeah. I didn't think to have Chris redo the, the test, but I should have yeah. because it would have been interesting to see him side by side. And I'm sure it, it changed all of it because I started feeling better almost immediately. But yeah. it was just funny that he even made a comment as he was doing it. He's like, whoa, you just got better when you stood up. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't happen. Uh, it's, it's a, I would say 15, 20% of the time people will have better HRV score when they stand up than when they're laying down. Hmm. That is interesting. Um, oh, what was I thinking of? Oh, well, I had a question, but now I can't think of it because I told that story instead. <laughs> um, the uh, Oh, when it comes to the machine, if somebody was going to try doing this and they were going to, um, they were trying to do it fairly cheaply, but they wanted to start experimenting with it just to start looking at information. Do you know of any devices that you would recommend as far as doing that? Because I know the machine you have is good and expensive, and that's how HRV tends to go. Yeah. It's going to be good. It's going to be expensive. Um. <laughs> You know, if you if you want to do it just on yourself, um, you know, Elite HRV and a little polar belt. You know, I think uh, uh, Dr. Myers has been wearing uh, wearing his for I don't know two three years every day every day. He has a data hound. It's awesome. Um, so you can do that. I think the Whoop strap which is a W O O P. I think is how they, uh, how it's spelled. That's a, a lot of the elite athletes will use that CrossFit games and stuff. Mm. And it, it lets you, lets them, are they overtraining? Have they recovered enough? I, you know, my, my ring here is a aura ring and it measures my sleep and my HRV and my body temperature, my activity and a bunch of stuff. So, you know, I wear this every day and then it gives me a, little uh graph here so i don't know oh i didn't download my stuff this morning i was a bad boy <laughs> so but it'll show you you know how did you sleep how was your uh, body temperature how was your hrv and um you know i i believe everybody should be doing this because your health you're the most important patient you have and not that we're adjusting ourselves, but you've got, you've got to make all these decisions. And so mm -hmm. the, the amount of sleep you get is probably the most important thing. I know that uh, this company, uh, they've been able to determine that people were coming down with COVID before they had any symptoms by the wow. metrics that it records. Uh, the new Apple Watch is able to do the same thing. And so takes a long time for this thing to download, but it's almost there. And then it's going to tell me that last night I went to bed late. <laughs> Need that reminder once in a while. <laughs> yeah. And I, I did not have a restful. I had a good night's sleep. I wasn't super restful. Uh, I had two hours and 28 minutes of REM sleep, three hours and 53 minutes of light sleep, an hour 41 of deep sleep. My resting heart rate was between uh, 76 and 67. Uh, my HRV score was 38 milliseconds. Uh, and uh, that would be a SDNN standard deviation of the time between the beats. And uh, my the resting heart rate was 67 beats per minute at the slowest and 76 at the highest. So, uh, and then it'd tell me my body temperature and all these other things if I wanted to, to look at that. But just going through, I can tell like if I, if I go out and have too much to drink, we go out to dinner and if I have uh, more than my body really wants, not like get passed out drunk or anything but if i if i have four beers instead of three uh i can tell on my hrv score mm -hmm. so uh, all those things you get to find out it's and it's interesting certain foods so you know having I, we were talking before that i've just been eating meat for the last four months i i've seen a change as i got rid of fruits vegetables and breads I, i've seen my metrics improve, my HRV metrics and everything. 
so it, it's it's a great tool everybody should use. And like I said, Whoop is probably one of the the better ones. But it, now they went to a uh, subscription, so it's like I don't know thirty dollars a month. You have to have to pay to use that. Whereas the lead the lead HRB, it's a free app, and you got to buy a forty dollar polar monitor. Hmm. But clinically. I don't know of a simple, easy way. Every, everything I've looked at has been, you know, $4,000 plus to get into it for. That's a sad thing. Maybe you and I need to go into the HRV equipment making business. Yeah, yeah. I'll get the engineers I know back home and start building them. Exactly. <laughs> Make it the size of a cell phone. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the... Um, if, if they have a, a subluxation station, probably getting CLAs is probably the easiest way to get that. Uh, I know they've made some upgrades since I've used one. And the, but again, that's pretty much just looking at a interbeat interval using a plethysmograph. So they're, they're not actually like I have, I put four electrodes on there. I'm actually looking at the heartbeat. Uh, same thing with the polar belt. It's got the, the strap you put on, so it's looking at the heartbeat. If you're looking at the, just at the fingertip, the pulse there, you know, there can be some, some errors in there. You heard me say, uh, you know, how many steps away from the subluxation is your analysis? Mm -hmm. Well, this is the same thing. If someone's got some uh, coronary artery disease or Renaud's or they've got a, you know, bad lower cervical spine. And so, uh, the circulation to their hands are are poor. You're going to get some poor readings there. And if the patient doesn't want to sit still, then you're going to get some poor readings as well. So, yeah, you said when you were measuring your heart, yours was was it 38 uh, milliseconds? Yeah. So I had a 38 millisecond variation in between. Is that a is that a good number or what would you consider? What's a good number? To, what would you expect? Uh, so until you get to be about my age, 50 is typically, you know, the benchmark 50 to 55 is like the median. I think 32 to 93 is, is the range. And, uh, there's probably, uh, near 30 studies that, that put that range there. So uh, the, the mean would be 50 beats, beats, uh, uh, 50 milliseconds, but having, all the C-spine damage uh, that I have from when I broke my neck, you know, that would push it down. And the last, the last adaptability symposium, we had Dr. Bernson, who is a professor emeritus at the Ohio State University. And I, I met him, went out one time, uh, Dr. Meyer and I went out to, to uh, Columbus and went to one of his seminars. And we were the only two chiropractors there. And his son actually was a, is a chiropractor, but he's not practicing anymore. And, uh, at the, at the uh, mixer they had after the first day, he's like, he said, you know, my son's a chiropractor, but he's not, not a chiropractor like you guys are. And he was just, you know, kind of a back pain, pop and pray and walk away kind of guy. But all, all, everyone else at the seminar, they were all, you know, psychology researchers. And they're like, why are you guys here? Like, why isn't every chiropractor here is the question you should be asking, where you're measuring physiology and we want to know, are we doing what we think we're doing? Are we having an impact? Yeah. But, um, so I had presented all the, the changes in patients, uh, HRV and the x-ray showing that as the curve came back, the HRV improved. And I even had some cases where the curve didn't come back and the HRV didn't change. Mm. Uh, so it was some really, really cool clinical research. And then I said, you know, and, and then I had a bunch of people that had spinal damage in there and talked about that and some of the research that's been done and published that. And I said, this is really important because this is me. <laughs> you know, I have this. And so he actually came over and, and sought me out and he said, you know, that was, you did a great job. And but your conclusion may not be true. And so he invited me to come out to, uh, to Columbus and there's some, some drug, some chemical they give you 
that will take all the sympathetic out of your, uh, it'll shut it down. So all you have is a parasympathetic and then you can really see what you're having because you're measuring with these things. You're really, you can't take separate one from the other. So you've got sympathetic and parasympathetic and the sympathetic can drown out the parasympathetic mm-hmm. uh, more so than the other way. But yeah, I'm like, I said, thanks doc, but I really don't know. That kind of freaks me out. <laughs> pretty freaky yeah. you're coming to shut down half my autonomic nervous system i'm thinking i pass on that yeah but i'll get back to you <laughs> let me watch you do it to somebody else <laughs> yeah 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 um every bad horror movie come to come to life right there yeah i, I remember when, when i when i first became aware of what hrv was i kept thinking you know this is a an it's not really that new of a technology, but it's just like been revived. It's like, maybe it's the technology allows us to measure it better. Is that what happened? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was really interesting. He went through a little history. And so when they first found HRV, uh, they were trying to get rid of, they thought it was noise. They thought HRV was noise oh. and they were trying to get rid of it. And then they realized that the, the noise was what they were really supposed to be looking for. <laughs> and so that was that was kind of cool when he when he went through that but um yeah it's been uh probably like 50 some years old now you know the russian cosmonauts is really where this started in russia they were trying to find ways to to monitor what was going on in their their astronauts and uh then it just as they found that out and then they it grew from there. I mean, it's it, it like my unit, I could pretty much use it as a polygraph. You know, the because you can tell as you start to see if you're starting to lie and get nervous, you're going to see those things change on there. And it's, you know, when you think of BJ Palmer's electroencephalonurum and typograph, it has little hallmarks of this. And I, you know, it would be interesting to see what we could combine with it and really get to the point where we could try and can we detect the mental impulse. But as technology becomes easier to use and um, more readily available, it, it pops back up. Everyone right now, all the psychologists, they, you know, they use it to see, you know, marketing. Do you like this? Do you not like this? Because mm. that's what they can measure. And uh um, there's, uh, you know, Yori Gidron over, I think he's teaching in France right now. He uses it, uh, to help people with PTSD and monitor. I mean, if you have someone that's actively in PTSD, you, you can, if you know how to read it, you can do that. You can find, uh, pots and, you know, a couple other things, you know, physiological conditions. You can say, okay, you got this, let's, you know, uh, get you to a specialist that can help that if they need that um but the the hard part is really like going back to the software is that we rely so much on the software now with looking at hrv that people say oh this looks great does it i don't know i can't see the data points so i want to actually see the the Mm -hmm. ecg and see where the software put the points and and like I said, the people that make that software, it's not not legally usable in the clinic. Hmm. Have you ever tried using it with people with, uh, let's say, autism or uh, ADHD or anything like that? Yeah, I pretty much everybody that comes in. Uh, you if see much change with that? Yeah, you're going to see changes. Uh, autism is is definitely a little bit slower. Yeah, and the. Uh, you said autism and what ADHD? Uh, ADHD. Yeah, I, I you know I haven't had a lot of ADHD patients uh, come in for uh, probably. Well, I think about it probably uh, maybe two last year. I don't remember offhand uh, how how it changed there. Hmm. I was just curious because I don't know why I was say about that. Just the fact that there's a neurological component there, and I'm not really sure how that would affect the sympathetic parasympathetic balance 
Um, yeah. They're uh, definitely, definitely more, they don't have a lot of parasympathetic going on, but it's not necessarily a whole lot different from the average person. And most people, if they come in and they have a fair amount of pain, that's going to suppress the, the parasympathetic too, because they're, mm-hmm. they're guarding and they're upset because of the pain. I mean, you can, if you get really upset before you come in, you know, we tell everybody, so we want you to have a good night's sleep, no big meal, no coffee, no cigarettes for a couple hours before you come in. Cause we want to minimize the likelihood of you, you know, um, skewing the data. So, but if someone gets really, really happy or really, really mad or gets cut off or nearly in an accident, you know, shortly before they come in, it's, it's not usable. So I always I have say, to ask, did you have this? All right, we'll do this at a, you know, later date. I was going to say, cause then they have to drive to your office and after they're done yelling at everybody in green Bay, they get yeah. out and that's still like, you're broken. Get off the road. <laughs> yeah. Um, no one does that here in green Bay. That's, that's only down in Atlanta. Okay. <laughs> you, you said the range is like uh, 32 to 90. If people get below those ranges, um, is it is it proportional that the further they get from the range, the harder it is to get them back into it? Is no, not necessarily. You know, like if, if you were uh, scared to death, you know, or just running for your life, you probably would have, a, you know, around 10, SDNN around 10. And I've had some people that were in single digits that, that bounced back, you know, rather nice. And after 50, uh, about 50 years of age, your HRV slowly goes down. So, um, just part of right now, what we think is normal aging. So none of us gets out of here alive. So yeah, we all know how the story ends. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay. That makes sense. So uh, very interesting. Well, uh, We'll take a little bit of a deviation from that topic because we've talked lots of HRV, but I think that that's good for people to know about HRV, to know it's out there, to know it's a tool that we can use. And really, I I think that in the coming years, there's going to be, um, once we get some more research done, there's going to be like this whole thing of really HRV becoming one of those tools where you almost wouldn't imagine practicing without it. Once I, we really- I, I hope so, but yeah. we have to come up with a much more usable form. And right, right now... If nothing else, it's a great way to show that you are impacting the autonomic nervous system because mm-hmm. we don't I, I, we don't have tools that measure that directly in a a big peer review published way. I mean, if you go to Google Scholar and type in HRV, you're going to get thousands of papers. You know, it is it is a well accepted tool within the medical community. Um, uh, especially the research community, there's been some studies that they can hook it up to people and know who's going to make it in and out of the ICU, uh, and ER stuff. So it could use, be used for triage purposes, uh, in, in a medical setting, but in a chiropractic setting, I think we're just still scratching the surface of, Mm -hmm. of its utility. We just don't have the, the time and the money and the manpower to investigate all these things and see what works. So we just have to sit there and keep scouring papers and say, "Hmm, that could work for us and then find a way to apply it. Yeah. We'll siphon it out slowly. Yeah. Since we don't have all those other things, it'll just be a slow process. Yeah. And most of the time, you know, it's, I'm in the office seeing patients, so I don't have time to sit there and, and hook them up and, and adjust them and then hook them up again and, and then siphon through all that data. And then why don't you go ahead and whip up like a, a, a report while you're at it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Write the whole case up. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> well, so then the other topic, and I think we can kind of tie these two together since you talked about um, not wanting the patient to be upset. And obviously those kind of things play a role in sympathetic, parasympathetic. So there's an aspect we don't often talk about, and that is bedside manner. Um, and how we are with the patient, because we don't want to be that force that's driving their nervous system in the way it shouldn't go. And, um, and you, we all kind of want that relaxing kind of thing. And so you have a story about um, when you had your surgery about the surgeon, um, 
that he was a good surgeon, not so nice of a person. So yeah. if you could talk about that a little bit and how his behavior kind of changed your, your thinking even about what you want to do for your future. Okay. So, uh, when, when I broke my neck and went in, you know, I interviewed a couple surgeons while in my hard collar in a, a couple days before it was a week from the, when I broke my neck, I had my surgery and, and he, you know, he fairly young guy, very confident, uh, no newest stuff. He looked at my x-rays from the ER and said, well, I think you have five breaks. The ER sent me home saying I might've tore some ligaments and the, uh, the first surgeon did a CT scan and said he saw three breaks and I had five breaks. So the guy looks at my x-rays and says, well, I think you might have five breaks in a dislocation. And he looks at the CT and he says, you definitely have five breaks. I'm like, all right, you're my guy. Um, and it was, uh, it was, it was my last or second to last visit that really, uh, blew me away. And I was sitting in a room waiting for him and they had a prep room was right next door and I could hear everything that was said in that room. And so all of a sudden I didn't really pay attention until I heard my name and I'm in UW Madison. And, uh, so it's a teaching hospital. So every time he was in a room, there was a bunch of students in the room, uh, with them. And so I, uh, I, uh, hear my name and I start listening and they're telling him everything about me, except for my case. I mean, he knew who I was dating. They knew when they had, the doctor had met the gal I was dating at the time. Uh, you know, my parents, my friends, you know, what I did, blah, 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 blah. And he comes in, well, first one of the, his, uh, interns comes in and hangs my x-rays up and he's got them upside down. And so mind you, I'm in just in pre-med at this, this point in time. And I don't, I hadn't even considered going to chiropractic college at this point. And I, uh, I'm like, isn't that upside down? And he goes, oh yeah, yeah. I'm like, all right. So this is a little sketchy. And then the guy comes in, he just parrots back everything to me, everything that he had been told. And I'm like, you can drop this act. Uh, I can hear everything that's said in the room and they just told you everything. So these students are sitting there taking notes about my personal life, not what he's saying. I think they're scribbling notes and I look at them and they just all got this big, you know, deer in the headlights uh, eyes. And so, you know, he finished, uh, he said, okay, well, blah, blah, blah. It looks good. You're fine. You know, call me if you need me. I'm like, man, yeah, that just didn't sit well with me, that bedside manner. And so then uh, that's really, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but that made me think I did not want to go into medicine because I did not want to be that guy. And then I remembered my chiropractor who, you know, I liked, wasn't a gonsta guy. He was a nice guy. I always, he always made me feel better. Everybody seemed to like him, uh, but he had these travel cards that had a name on there and just a bunch of ticks and little boxes on what he did. Uh, this, that was in the Mercedes eighties. And then, uh, but he knew everybody, you could hear him. I mean, his walls were thinner than the walls in the hospital and he knew everybody, their whole families and everything. And I'm like, that's, that's kind of what I want to be like. And so I called him and, and he said, yeah, go down to go down to Palmer. I'm like, all right. And, but to go back to the other doc, my sister, uh, had to have surgery, uh, five, six, seven years ago. She was always one of these people that would <laughs> self-manipulate. And so with my broken neck and my parents both being in their eighties and having, you know, a bunch of arthritis in there, if you take the worst parts of our three necks and put them into one neck, it was still better <laughs> than hers. And, uh, she got in a minor car accident and was her right arm was paralyzed for like three months because of that. And so I sent her. Uh, I was already up here in Green Bay, and so I, you know, I sent her to a couple of chiropractors uh, that I thought could help her down there, and she just wasn't getting uh, results. And so it was it was time for her to go at least talk to a surgeon. And I said, "Well, you can go talk to this guy." He said, "He's kind of a jerk, but he's good." And uh, she calls me back the hour after she's out of there. She's like, "Yeah, he's a jerk, still a jerk." So, <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, but you know, patient bedside manner and because it's a relationship you have to have with the patients if they don't buy you know the, the phrase is you know don't shoot the messenger well you know if you're the messenger you got to be able to they have to buy into you in order to let you do anything mm -hmm. uh, dr 
Troxel always would say the purpose of the first visit is to get a second visit because you're not fixing many people in one visit. So they have to do that. And, and we are very much a relationship oriented profession, <clears throat> profession, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that have big practices that are mediocre chiropractors at best, you know, um, just look at the ring dinger dude. I mean, I don't know <laughs> if, if I don't know him from Adam, but you know, there's something other than necessarily that quality of care that's driving people into the, into the office. You know, maybe it's their 15 minutes of fame on YouTube or whatever, but we have to be able to communicate with those patients and lead them down that path. You know, if someone's going to stay with you, I mean, I'm my fourth patient ever is still a patient. I moved up here and then he moved up even further. He's still two hours away at the tip of uh, the thumb of Wisconsin, but he still comes down for care. So that those are re relationships that you have to build and get them to understand because there's so what we offer is so different from what the average person has learned. I mean, uh, you know, Dr. Barge always used to say a uh, pill to sleep, a pill to wake, a pill for every body ache. That's <laughs> the average person's mentality. Oh, I just need a pill. You know, what do you got for me, doc? Uh, but if we're going to get them to understand that you've been given a, a physical form that's animated by your innate intelligence over your nervous system, and that's the only one you get. So you got to take care of it. It's not like buying a car, you wreck it, you go buy a new one. This is the only one you get. You got to take care of it. And, and that if you didn't need those drugs in the past, you probably, or at least might not need them in the future. If we can fix the actual problem that, you know, if you can get that done in, in, in 12 visits, you're amazing because I can't, <laughs> you just got to give them a little bit at a time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have to build that trust. And it's like, you need them to trust your mind and your thinking process. But you also need them to trust your hands and what yep. you can do. There's a couple of different avenues where we can run them off. They also need to trust your ethics. Mm -hmm. So there's a few different ways that we can run them off. And if we clean all those things up so that all those things are good, then it actually can be somewhat startling how quickly you can develop trust with people you don't know. Yeah. It's because you do it and you always do it that way. And that reputation gets around. So people come in already knowing how you do it. And then when you do it the way they know you do it, then they go, well, yeah, that's how I was told you do it. And it's, it just flows. Yeah. The fear of unknown is a huge roadblock to, to people yeah. coming in for care. And, you know, I, I tell most of my patients at some point in time, I, I am, I'm a realist and I understand that I get hired and fired on a daily basis. You know, you don't like something I did. You don't like something I said. You don't like something the staff said. You didn't like that. I, I, I missed my jump shot with my face paper and it's sitting in the corner <laughs> Uh, there's a billing snafu or something. I understand that people, people will quit for a number of reasons. Some of, some of them aren't under my control. Well, I've had people come in and tell me that they were, uh, they were going to see someone else, uh, that was a little bit closer to them. And the real issue is that they did not want to cross the river. That's a big thing. I don't know if it is okay. everywhere, but here in green Bay, people don't, you know, I'm, I'm on the east side. They are, and they don't want to come from the west side over. I'm like, it's five miles further. I said, all right, who are you going to go to? You know, looked him up. I said, that's five miles further than it is from from here. I mean, you're just across the river. I'm like, yeah, but I don't like the bridge. <laughs> are you never going to go over a bridge in your life? Are you? <laughs> Only in the summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, but... But getting to the point where they're comfortable admitting that mm -hmm. you, you've got to have those relationships and also, you know, managing patients' expectations is huge. Uh, yeah. On my front page of my paperwork, I say on a scale of one to 10, if Dr. Lyons finds uh, a problem, how committed to you are, are you to fixing it? And if they get below an eight, we have a conversation. And so, you know, I'd be like, Dave, you put down uh, that you're a five committed to fixing this at a five, and that's a problem. Uh, and here's why. How committed do you want me to be to fixing your problem? 
and everybody goes 10. I'm like, all right, I, I don't have your problem. <laughs> it's your problem. It's not mine. So I, I can't be a 10 and you be a five because you're not going to do what I need you to do to fix it. So that means yeah, I can't be a 10 if you are a five. Pardon? It's impossible for me to be a 10 if you're a five. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're just not going to let me do that. Right. So why should I care more about your problem than you do? <laughs> that just makes no sense at all. And they're like, oh, and that's, you know, for those people and, and that will help pull a lot of those people out of that, you know, that, that funk. Cause a lot of people are just, they don't know what health is. They don't know. They don't care. They just want to get up and, you know, eat their donut in the morning and drink their coffee and go home and have beers at night. That's the way they are. Uh, but it's, that starts to make them realize that maybe they do have some control over their, their life and their health and what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I, I in, enjoy getting to know and, you know, picking apart patients. You know, the, the tough part is that then you start to talk non-shop stuff too much because you're getting to know them and, and always you always have to bring it back to chiropractic and and the spine and their health without yeah. being that annoying guy that just talks about the spine chiropractic <laughs> all and the time <laughs> yeah. you know. and I, I think it's worse you know for us because we're in the office seeing patients all day so there's only so many different variations of that conversation and we feel like we're preaching it to them all the time but really they're they're there for, you know, five minutes, you know, three times a week, maybe for a couple of weeks, but then they don't, they don't get it all the time and, and they forget what they heard. And maybe they, maybe you told me that once before, but I don't really remember. And so it's okay to repeat yourself. Yeah. I remember seeing patients. I felt like I was having the same conversation over and over. Now I teach. And if I've got three labs in a week that are the same class, by the end of the week, I'm saying stuff. I'm like, did I just tell you guys this? Or like, it's still with me. I'm like, like, that's a different class. Which I class was this? Anybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been a lifelong problem. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, you know, they, they say the average person needs to hear something 16 times before they remember it. So repeating it over and over and over again, but in a different way, mm -hmm. uh, with a different spin is what they need. And not so much to... to teach them what to think, but give them the tools so they know how to think critically. You know? yeah. And you, you know, you know, it's good when, you know, your referrals go up and when you get patients calling you for non uh, musculoskeletal things, you know? Oh yeah. My favorite intro is you probably can't help with this, but, and I'm like, I like that one because yeah. it means that even though it might be totally out of our scope, they still trust me enough. Exactly. Oh, I can on whatever it may be. So I, I always liked that one. I, I really did like it when it was like, you can't yeah. help me, but okay, yeah. tell me. You know, rigor, rigor mortis is probably the only thing that we can't help. <laughs> but we're willing to try. That's I mean, we're, we great. We're trying. <laughs> Just get this to move, Atlas to move a little bit. <laughs> I'll fix um, that. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you mentioned something earlier, and I was thinking, you know, for those, for the new docs, the people who are new out there, and are probably first experiencing having a patient where they might have thought it was such a great visit and then the patient doesn't come back and they start playing the mental games of was it me was it something i said and they start getting into that whole funk that by this point we're like i wasn't even yeah. aware they didn't come back yeah uh, okay. it off but yeah. how would you help them to deal with that uh mental paralysis that happens that you get yourself because that's what ends up happening yeah you go into paralysis and now you're probably not going to help the next person because you're so paralyzed about what you think might have happened with the last one. Um, you know, I talking with my my associate that just started about some of this, you know, because this is chiropractic, having a healthy chiropractic practice is really a farming game. You know, you got to plant a lot of seeds and and you know, water them and and then it grows. And you know, it's like the 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 parable of the sower, you know. You know, if you uh, what you harvest what you reap depends upon, you know, what you sow, where you sow, how you sow, how much you sow, when you sow, you know, it's winter right now. If I go plant a bunch of seeds, they're probably not going to make it into the ground because once the ground uh, snow goes away, the birds are going to come and eat them all. So there's nothing making it in the ground. 
<clears throat> but you have to plant a lot of seeds in fertile ground. So when you start out, you got to find places that people that want to hear your message and then, you know, spread it uh, as, as liberally and as healthfully, healthfully as possible. You know, you don't want to be that, that person that's just schmarmy uh, or looking desperate. But when you first start out, you're hungry. It's a, it's a, you know, you get to keep what you kill world out there and you don't have any patience. So you got to get patience. So you got to go out and not look hungry and desperate, even though you are, you know, and so you have to practice these little offhand, you know, sayings and someone's, uh, when someone asks you a question, you know, your instinct is just go oh, oh, and, and just vomit everything you know about health and the body onto these people. Cause you gotta get this and this and this. And, and really what you want to do is just, you know, throw a couple seeds out there and let them mull it around and ask for more. And if they keep asking for more, then you can give them a little more. But, you know, if you're in the gym or at a party or out to dinner and someone comes up and says, you know, you know, Dr. Fowler, you know, I, I, I've got this condition, you know, can you help you when you're, when you're young, you jump right in and you can't do that. You know, say, you know, that's a, I, I'm not certain. Uh, that's, that's a great question. I've helped other people like that in the past, you know, uh, why don't you call the office and, and, and come in or something like that. But, uh, you know, nowadays some people do that. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If I was a ur urologist, you wouldn't be, you know, whipping your junk out here right now. And, you know, ask you in the middle of the restaurant, that'd be a little awkward. I'll make a diagnosis. Let me get my glasses on. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, that's a tendency. So you, you have to, uh, even though you're hunting when you start out, you, you can't make it look like you're hunting. You've got to just be that great approachable person that's kind and willing to help, but you have to value and respect yourself enough to not be given away all the, you know, give it all away for free, which is another huge problem. I mean, everybody's got their, Hey, I got this great deal. And it's, you know, we're going to do your consultation exam, x-rays and adjustment for $21 and, uh, you know, to have some self-respect. Mm -hmm. You can't yeah. do that. It was kind of a turning point for me too. When I realized that I don't know anything until I have my hands on it. Right. And so, and so if I'm not going to do that right there in a the restaurant, then the reality is I don't know much. Cause I think about all the times where I've scoped the patient, I'm palpating the patient and the adjustments coming next. And I'm still thinking, I'm not totally sure what I'm going to adjust just yet yeah. because I may be really far in before I really come to a conclusion. And that's after having my hands on them without the exactly. hands on, without the scoping. I don't know anything. I'm not going to spew all this stuff. Like I promise, I guarantee I'm going to straighten out your scoliosis and you'll be three inches taller. Yeah. Like no way. They have no idea until you get uh, that patient right there in front of you with those x-rays, your exam results, knowing what it is. But you know, the nice thing about digital x-ray these days is Patients come in all the time, and a patient will talk to me, and uh, or potential patients, and they'll talk about stuff. I'm like, you've had X-rays and MRIs. I'm like, yep. All right. Here's this is cost you nothing. You call the hospital, you get a disc, you drop it off the office, so I can look at it because that costs you nothing. I can look at those for ten minutes, and then we can have a, at least a slightly more informed discussion. They mm -hmm. love that. Uh, you're an authority, and almost always you will get those patients. And yesterday I was out uh, <clears throat> at the sportsman's club and there's a guy that I, I've met at a couple different shoots and, and he, uh, he just had neck surgery, combat vet has some stuff going on. And I had always tried, you know, I'm like, Hey man, you can come in. I can, I can take a peek at you. I uh, just found out yesterday that he'd sees a chiropractor that I would send him to, but, uh, not regu nearly regularly enough. Well, and he sent me pictures of his fusion uh, probably about a month ago, right after he got it done. And <clears throat> I'm done shooting my my course of fire, and and I, I all of a sudden I hear Dan, uh, and I turn around, he's there, and he says he says I need you, I need you to come and check me. I'm like what? And I'm like, you're not a patient. We're not not in the office. He goes. 
I just fell and heard my neck crack. Do I need to go to the hospital? I'm like, oh, that's a little different. So, <clears throat> you know, I'm like, pull up your x-rays because everybody got them on her phone. I couldn't find them really easy on mine. Found them like, all right. And, and I palpated. I'm like, no. I said, you're fine. Your fusion, there's nothing moving in there. Uh, you do have a little degeneration above and below. Crepitus is normal. And so, you know, that's, that's probably fine. You're probably going to be a little bit sore tomorrow, but I, I would be very, very surprised if you did any, any damage. And so you know, that put them at ease. And, uh, I said, you know, call me tomorrow if, if you're having issues and I haven't got a call. So he's probably happy as happy as a clam. So. Yeah. And that's a good point because a lot of times what we forget is it, when they come to you, they're not necessarily expecting you to just adjust them right there on the table, whatever you can yeah. find. What they really want to know is they're confused by the complication of the system. They want to know what's my next step. Yeah. So like in this example, he just wants to know what's my next step. And so a lot of times patients come up and they ask you these questions and what they're really wanting to know is what's the next step, but they don't even know to ask that. So then your brain jumps ahead and is like, they want me to adjust them right here where we're standing. And that's not the case. So it's yeah. good to know that really, if you just give them the next step, listen to what they're saying, give them the next step, you can do that. And yeah. not have to. And, you know, it kind of reminds Dr. Gantz had always said, you know, use guys adjust too hard and uh, too often in too many places. And so sometimes you don't have to uh, adjust. I just had Friday night, uh, a chiropractor, uh, another guns, a GMI guy, uh, screwed his low back up earlier in the day and he was going to try and come in, but we couldn't make that happen. And so he came up today and, uh, we hung out for a little bit and I checked him and, and I, I, you know, I scoped, scoped and palpated. I said, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd leave the low back alone. I, you know, I've checked him. I not as regular chiropractor, but I check him often enough to know what it looks like. And, uh, usually if it's real bad, I'm his go-to guy. He'll come up and, you know, spend the, you know, uh, spend the day here and adjust him a, a handful of times. And, but, uh, I said, I'd leave, I'd leave it alone. I, I wouldn't adjust it. So, so we just got to hang out, but I, being able to say, no, we don't need to adjust it because we've all said, oh, I'll give it one more and regretted yeah. <clears throat> giving it that one more. So yeah, it takes having some the, more self-control to do the other. Yes. Having the confidence to say, well, we got to let this go. And yeah. patients appreciate that when you, when you don't adjust them, oh, we got to let this go. They understand because you, you, you have the crack addicts on one hand that just, they love that, you know, pop, they love the euphoria of that. And then you have the people that really, really get it. And they're like, oh, I don't need to be adjusted. I'm getting better. This is docs just not going through the motions. Cause that you hear that from people that have been to other chiropractors, you go in, and it's just like, uh, they do the same thing every visit, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so do we, we scope, we palpate, we look at the x-ray, <laughs> you know, and then we, we adjust when needed, but they don't know the difference between adjusting necessary, uh, L5 or L4, or even, even a hip or a sacrum. They just know we got our hand in their lower back. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> I wanted to circle back to, uh, when you talk about patients coming in at once and then not coming back anymore. The best thing that you can do is pick up the phone and call them and say, Hey, Dave, this is Dr. Lyons. Uh, you know, we, we saw you on last Tuesday and I haven't seen you since just wanted to follow up. Uh, did everything go well? You know, what's, what's going on? You missed your second appointment and you'd be surprised at some of the answers that you get. You know, I, I had uh, a gal come in, was referred in by another chiropractor probably almost 10 years ago and she was a mess got her doing pretty well. And then she disappeared. And then like four years later, she came back in and, and on the, the paperwork, she said, chiropractic care helps with whatever her complaint was that time. <clears throat> and I said, well, who's adjusting it? She goes, no, you're my chiropractor. I said, what? She goes, uh, you're my chiropractor. I'm like, I haven't seen you in four years. She goes, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be alive without you. And I said, what? She goes, how do you not know this? I'm like, because you just walked out of the office and never told me any of this. But yeah, yeah she's like, a, you know, she was a really, really, she had a lot of, and that's the other thing. Patients don't always tell you the full, the full picture. They have a lot of stuff going on that they don't tell you about. And so she, she was one of those people and, and she very well might not have been alive had it not been for care. But then she did the same thing again. And, you know, after uh, you know, like two, three months of putting her back together. She was doing pretty good. And then she disappeared again. 
And then she called up again two weeks ago and made an appointment. And then something came up in her life. And she goes on. She called back, said, I have to cancel. I'll get in when I can. So I, I don't know. But, you know, don't don't beat yourself up mentally for things you didn't do. Um, yeah, they may be totally. To, if you have a question, ask, ask. But that's also when you're starting out. The hard part, you don't want to hear, oh, it didn't work. It hurt. Right. Uh, it hurt, yeah. And, and that's, you know, I think there's a lot of chiropractors out there that don't re-x-ray because they don't want to see an x-ray that didn't change or, or they don't want to do a follow-up, you know, uh, exam using a thermography and surface EMG because they don't want to see that those things didn't change. Mm -hmm. You just have to understand that it's a, it's a moment in time change. They, they don't always go back to perfect because we, we have lives, you know, people slip, fall. There's a lot of stuff going on in there. And there's other things that will affect all our measurement tools as well. Mm -hmm. So that's why you have to have more than one. That's why, you know, having the Gonstead system, having the, the, the symptomatology or the history, the, the palpation, the visualization, the instrumentation, and the x-ray, you got five things. And if all five things say fix this bone, hey, you got it easy. If they say fix five different bones, well, then you got a little, you got a little more work to do. But, you know, but to be a chiropractor that just bases everything off of one form of analysis, that's, that's a little dicey. Yeah. Because nothing's 100%. Yeah. Yeah. We know any one of our five things will be wrong some percentage of the time. So if you only have one, <laughs> you're going to be wrong. Whatever percentage yeah. of the time that thing is wrong. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. That was the very fast hour. We could probably... Yeah. All day, but but thank you so much for joining me. That was actually a fun conversation to go from HRV all the way around to bedside manner and practice stuff. So it was very Beautiful. good. Thank you so much. You betcha. Thanks for having me, Dave. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Lyons for joining me. If this is the first that you've ever heard about heart rate variability, I'd like to encourage you to look into it and begin building your knowledge base. You will definitely be seeing more of it in the future, especially from those of us who are in the Gonstead community. If you're new in practice, I hope you found Dr. Lyon's advice to be encouraging as well as insightful. The better you get at handling patient expectations, the sooner you'll begin to enjoy the unpredictability of practice life. Next week, I have a special guest planned that is unlike anyone we've had on the podcast before. So until then, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.